1: this is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another special episode of the podcast. This is part of our one on one series where we get together with uh, book authors and we allow our audience, our members, pose questions to them. One of our most popular recent conversations was with Gail Tsemak Limon, uh, who is a a best-selling author. Her most recent book is The Daughters of Kobani, a story of rebellion, courage, and justice. She's also the um, author of two bestsellers, Ashley's War, The Untold Story of a team of women soldiers on the special ops battlefield and the dressmaker of Karakana. And she is an adjunct um, uh, fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hi, Gail. How are you? Hi. Uh, very glad that you could join us. Uh, the way uh, these podcasts work, Uh, is that I will pose a couple of questions to you, but then some of our members are invited to join us and they can pose questions later. If you're one of the members and you've got a question for Gail, the thing to do is to go to the part of the screen that says Q&A, click on that and type in your question and I will feed them in as they go. Uh, But the sooner you feed them in, the more likely I am to be able to get to them. Uh, but I'm going to start with a few questions of my own for Gail. Uh, and uh, although I'm sure we will talk about the book, which uh, as those folks who listened to the great episode that we did with you about the book know, I think it's fantastic. I've been very pleased to see the great reaction it's been getting. I, I assume you're pleased also.
0: I am. Thank you. And, and really humbled by it, really moved by it.
1: Well, it's a, it's a, it's a moving book, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, great books are stories are great stories about people, and your book is great stories about people. You know, heroic, fascinating, interesting, uh, real people. But let me let me pull the pull the uh, the frame back a little bit uh, and talk to you in your broader capacity as somebody who spent a lot of time um, uh, following the, the the Middle East and and. Uh, particularly the battles that we have been bogged down in for so long. There is a a desire, I I think, uh, among all Americans, but especially and explicitly on the part of the president of the United States uh, to dial down our involvement in that part of the world. And, uh, you know, it just, that's understandable, but it also seems like one of those bad relationships you can never get out of. Uh, and I'm just wondering as as you look at it and as you look at Syria and as you look at Iraq where there are, you know their headlines breaking every day, we also can look at Afghanistan you know the, the, it's easier to say you want to get out than to get out. What do you think? what do you think's going on?
0: 100% and the thing is, that we can all now measure our ages in Afghan policy reviews we have lived through. And truly, this is across administrations and across parties, right? You're talking about this went from the Obama administration to Trump to Biden. And quite honestly, there is very little difference in the sentiment in terms of, we were elected to get out of these wars, not to add a greater US involvement to these wars. There's also a similarity in that The ghost of the Iraq war hangs over every decision made on Syria. And now I really do believe uh, on Afghanistan and how we think about withdrawal. And I think the third piece is that what a point of unity across party has been, the time has come for these post 9-11 wars to end. But the next question has never been answered, which is, and then what? Those three words, the and then what, have hung over every single administration decision made across three administrations now uh, on the issue of both Iraq and Afghanistan. And certainly they shaped Syria policy or the hunt for a Syria policy, which is different than the actual policy itself.
1: Um, Yeah, you know, you you talk about uh, policy reviews and uh, uh, for those and our audience is full of kind of wonky folks who, who remember back uh, the The first big policy review of the Obama administration was an Afghan policy review, yeah. which took nine months. And uh, one of the striking features of the policy review um, was the role that the vice president played, Joe Biden. He wanted out. He did not want to be there. Uh, he has in fact, regularly had rather different views from the mainstream on both Iraq and Afghanistan. Do you think that's going to make a difference?
0: I think it has shaped his approach coming in. And I think that he also has found it incredibly difficult to extract the United States from wars in which the US presence actually is making a difference. And the question of and then what for his administration now that he is president is not terribly different than it was uh, when he was serving as vice president. I wrote a piece in 2012 for foreign policy about uh, the uh, Biden uh, debate with Paul Ryan about Afghanistan policy. And the question of what at what point the phrase conditions on the ground would be relevant to setting timelines for U.S. withdrawal. We are there once more, only now it's not 2012, it's 2021. And that is because there is real concern about what happens if it becomes a a vacuum in that region in a very tough neighborhood. And because the question of watching the Taliban take over if that were what it was does not become less painful in 2021 than it was in 2017, than it was in 2015. That specter of of what happens in Kabul. Uh, And then I think with this administration, you also have a real deep sense of a discussion of human rights that is front and center with Secretary Blinken. And I think there's deep concern, I myself have talked about this a lot, about what happens to those who have been fighting on the front lines of extremism in Afghanistan, namely women, in uh, a period in which the Taliban, as the Taliban always says, you know, you have the clocks, but we have, uh, you know, the time. So that I think is, are the central, those are the central questions that continue to challenge U.S. policy, because it's one thing to say we want to withdraw; it's another thing to say, and this is how we get there without leaving a vacuum in our
1: wake. Um, it's it's interesting that you mention uh, human rights and and women. Uh, I, I just wrote a column that'll appear tomorrow on 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 this subject because uh, yesterday Tony Blinken unveiled the human rights report. Of this administration, some of it was prepared under the uh, the Trump uh, administration, um, but there was a big reversal. And the big reversal, one of the big reversals, in it was that you know th- a number of issues that are vitally important, human rights issues, when it comes to women, like reproductive rights issues, abuses associated with those uh, issues, associated with access to birth control and other things. Um, were essentially just sort of written out of the program by the Trump administration. They just said, we're not gonna focus on this anymore uh, because that was consistent with, you know, Mike Pompeo's evangelical agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, Tony Blinken came in and, and he said something that, you know, is, is in fact a quote of what Hillary Clinton said at the Beijing Women's Conference, which is women's rights are human rights. And, and, and we're gonna reverse that, we're gonna focus on this. You've been there on the ground, your, your books are about being there on the ground, dealing with the women who are playing a vital role in this. Can you draw a line between America's stance on human rights and women and our national security interests in the region?
0: To me, this matters most because it is about national security. It's about shared prosperity, shared stability, more people having more of a stake in more of their communities, more societies so that there is less in terms of conflict, right? And when you look at what women are doing on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, oftentimes in Iraq, certainly in Northeastern Syria, and what they are doing is fighting extremism, getting kids to go to school, starting businesses, helping provide uh, livelihood options, This is stuff that we see as soft, but which is deeply hard work. And it's deeply hard work when you're facing existential threats to do it. And yet, because we have not ever really seen women's work in those contexts as deeply serious, nor meriting intellectual examination, we have not often taken the time to connect the dots between your excellent question and reality on the ground, which is, does this really matter to America's national security? I argue that if you are President Biden, who deeply cares about a notion of, you know, he's talked quite eloquently about CT light, right? This whole notion of U.S. air power, but local folks on the ground fighting local battles that have, uh, they have a local stake in, then you cannot do any of that that lasts and endures when half the population is seen as a special interest group. When these are the people, when you're on the ground, you see every single day showing up at community centers, opening businesses, uh, fighting against extremism, trying to keep their kids out. I remember interviewing one young man. I said, did you join ISIS? And he said, oh, my cousins, everybody in my town did. This was in Raqqa. And I said, why didn't you? And he goes, oh, my mother would kill me. Right, and so, but we don't take that work seriously. And to me, this whole notion of full stake in the voice of what comes next for your society and the U.S. as a role in enabling those who are fighting against extremism, and we're talking on the on the extremism side here, we're not yet on the great power side and, and the Chinese context, I, I think really does matter.
1: Um, I, I, I want to remind anybody who wants to pose a question to put it into the Q&A feed. Let me keep going here. Um, because, you know, I, it's interesting, and I, I'm sure this was all part of your vast strategic plan that you worked out 10 years ago, but you've written about the role of, of women in, in, in the US military in this region, the role of women in Afghanistan in this region, and, and now the role of, of um, uh, uh, Kurdish women in, 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 the, in the conflict that intersects Syria, but also impacts Turkey, Iran, Iraq. Um, and, you know, the last time we talked, we talked a little bit about was how the United States, whenever it's given the chance, um, lets down the Kurds, but I, but I, you know, I think the stakes are quite different and, 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 and more worrisome when it comes to women in these parts of the world. And, um, you know, the, I, I've been writing about these things for as long as they've been going on and watching them and observing them and talking to people. And I have to tell you, when I look at Afghanistan, here's what it looks like. We're going to try to draw it down. We're going to leave a few people there. Gradually, the Taliban is going to take more and more control. We're going to hand the keys to the country back to them, and they're going to start doing horrible things again. And it's going to affect women disproportionately. See a same kind of an outcome as 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 likely um, in what goes on in Syria, and whether you know it's Syrians or Turks or somebody else who you know undermines the futures of these 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 women um, uh, who who played such a heroic role as as Kurdish fighters. They're they're also likely to be let down. Does that worry you?
0: I mean, it worries me immensely, but I'm going to play the optimist for you for a moment, right? Because, look, I remember under the Obama administration, the Washington Post headline was basically called Afghan women pet rocks. Right. And I remember reading that piece and then writing a foreign policy piece saying Afghan women are not pet rocks. There are our allies in this fight. You care about keeping the Taliban at bay. And, you know, why do we care? We care. So it's not an epicenter of extremism right from the U.S. side. So the way, U- I
1: don't think it was a Washington Post article. I think it was somebody in the Obama administration. That's correct. Well, Sorry. Like, we in have the to lighten Post. our backpack and we have to remove some of these pet rocks out of it. Which exactly right lives forever with me as one of the shittiest things an American official has said. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. And that quote in that piece, right, provoked a lot of conversation among people who said, This is the whole issue right here. I was one of them and said, This is not about nice to haves. This is about national security. And until we frame the inclusion of women as relevant to national security versus a pet rock or a nice to have that is disposable, we will be in exactly the same carousel over and over again. And where I do have some hope is a couple of reasons. One is I do think that more people are having this conversation and that more of America can see that this is not about special interest, but it is about shared interest. And about a shared interest in a shared prosperity and stability. And that if you don't want large deployments of US forces in tough parts of the world, what do you want to do? You want to make sure that people who have the same values, who have the same interests, who are doing the work and risking their lives. You have female judges now getting assassinated in Afghanistan. You have women polio workers getting assassinated in Afghanistan. You have women journalists facing assassination, all these people whose lives are on the front line, who are fighting our fight, right? And and so I think that more people are paying attention to that. You can call me hopelessly optimistic, but uh, coming from Greenbelt, Maryland doesn't come, you know, not a lot of PG County hopeless optimists. So I will just say, I I really do think it has a dose of realism running through its veins. I think the second thing is that People don't want large-scale deployments of U.S. forces and are increasingly coming to see the fact is that we need something that endures. And there is evidence and there's more conversation Uh, and now more leaders, right, including Secretary Blinken, certainly following the steps of Secretary Clinton, who are saying that it actually does matter to America, that women who not only are half the population, but give birth to the rest of the population, right, are central to at least being considered in how they can play a greater stake for greater stability. Not because it's a nice to have, but but because it's relevant to national security.
1: So one of the inherent contradictions in a lot of US foreign policy uh, conversations about this is that generally speaking, the more enlightened policy uh, folks out there want to uh, show respect for other cultures. Uh, and this has been turned against them by leaders of extremist groups and, and and others with different kinds of cultural traditions, which say, well, leave us alone. We're going to make these decisions and you know, women shouldn't drive. Women shouldn't be allowed to, uh, leave the country without their husband's permission. L- women uh, shouldn't be allowed to go to school. That's our tradition. Right. And to me, you know, of course, that's nonsense. You can't have that tradition. It's the 21st century. There are human rights. And uh, if your tradition violates human rights, it's got to go. Um, but that's not very politically correct. How, so how, I, how, do you, how do you reckon we deal with that?
0: So I I will tell you about a conversation I had with a quite uh, fancy European diplomat about the issue of child marriage. So they said, Gail, you're talking about this child marriage thing. It's not relevant. We don't need to care. This is their tradition. I said, really? Because if a 12-year-old girl who went to school for exactly two years knows that she shouldn't be marrying somebody who's 27, shouldn't you? with all your masters and all your degrees and all your access and all your influence, I have never anywhere in the world met a girl facing child marriage who says, yes, sign me right up. I can't wait to marry somebody 15 years older than me and to leave school. I have never yet met anybody who is fighting for change, fighting for girls' education, fighting against child marriage, fighting for economic opportunity, who doesn't welcome people not Advocating for them, but advocating alongside them, right? And who are just get out of the way because the fundamental reality, which you write about all the time beautifully, is people in power like to stay in power. We dress it up in all kinds of other things, but the real reality is if you can do everything, why would you want to share that power? And every place in the world, this is not about the US shaping these values. These are about those folks, those places, you know, girls I've met young women I've met, every place in the world who are doing the work themselves. It's only a question of whether fancy politicians and policymakers in fancy rooms with light and power and water and infrastructure that works uh, decide to listen to them and decide that their voices matter. And I think that's why this is such an interesting moment, right, because we are in a moment where people are questioning the rules that govern their lives that they didn't write. And that is reaching policymakers. But my one final story, David, I think you'll probably appreciate this more than anybody is. I went to do a briefing in a country that will not be named. And the folks at the embassy said, well, you know, it's just easier if we don't have women. And I said, you know, women have been this amazing point of unity where the one thing everybody can agree on is that they're not really required at the table. And I said, I think actually women would like to not offer that source of unity any longer. I don't speak for them. Go speak to them yourself. But <laughs> I'm just telling you, I'm pretty sure they would like to separate themselves from offering you and the combatants that source of, of joy and well, that's so not joy. This that source of uh, of unity and alignment.
1: Well, I you know I this this happens to be what, what sort of the hot button issue of all hot button issues for me. I <laughs> believe that the sort of systematic. Um, oppression of women is the greatest crime of, of all human history. But, but it manifests itself daily in the behavior of enlightened countries, where if you said to you know, the leaders of you know, the US or someplace else that the, a group of men were um, denied the right to be educated, denied the right to work, denied the right to travel, denied the right to vote, denied the right to choose their spouse, uh, forced into what is essentially institutionalized sexual abuse. There, it, that, the, whatever country was doing that would be sanctioned into oblivion. Nobody on the planet Earth would do business with them. And yet every country uh, you know, uh, f- you know, for a swath of the planet, you know, a couple thousand miles long, does some of those things. Uh,
0: I I couldn't agree with you more, and yet, but it goes to how we see these issues and how we see these stories, right? Women who do groundbreaking and remarkable things are called exceptions. Men who do groundbreaking and remarkable things are called leaders. And it starts with the language we choose and it continues all the way through how we get to policy outcomes that leave huge swaths of population out. And not only are we fine with that, we think it's cleaner and easier, right? Because it tends to get us to more sterile solutions. The reality is, and this is the theme that has animated so much of the work I've had the privilege of doing, that suffocated opportunity is the enemy of global stability. I deeply believe that from having seen it on the ground. We have no idea how much talent we lose every day, right? The next Bill Gates, the next Maya Angelou, the next uh, inventor of something, because we say, no, it's okay that they go marry uh, somebody who is three decades older and, and leave school, right? This isn't about the United States policing everybody's rights. This is about homegrown voices, homegrown agents of uh, progress being heated and listened to. And that I think is, is where we are is, is, does this matter? I go back to the notion that this matters to the US as a matter of national security, not as a nice to have.
1: Yeah, well, and also as a moral imperative. There's a question here uh, from uh, one of our uh, uh, observers and members. Uh, I, I haven't read it fully, but I'll just read it to you and you can respond to it. It says here, does it make sense to speak of Afghan women or women of Kobani as having the same values as US or Western actors? There may be a coincidence of interests in, for example, keeping radical jihadists at bay but Kobani women represent a radical vision that does not align with the worldview of many people in DC. So my question is, do you agree with the question? And, 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 and if so, how do we deal with it?
0: Uh, I would take a step back and reframe the question. I think it actually, at the end, it comes to the notion writ large of human rights, right? Access to education, access to opportunity, access to a voice in your life. Do I think that those women are all fighting for that? Yes, I do. I, I deeply believe that the notion that you get a say in your life and a voice in your world is fundamentally what is at stake for those women. I don't speak for them, but I can share with you what I have seen on the ground, speaking to and with uh, those
1: women. Um, yeah. Well, the question is, you know, are there changes and 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 do we perceive them? Tony Blinken's a very, very different guy, um, but he's got a lot on his plate. You know, and I've noticed over time, uh, you know, the Sandy Berger, former national security advisor, used to always say yeah. Washington is the place where um, the urgent always overtakes the important. Yes, um, and I remember, I, I remember during the period that I was running foreign policy, we would give out awards every year to leading thinkers. And one year we had four guys who were part of the resistance in Raqqa come. Yeah. Uh, and they, it was one of the most moving exchanges that I've ever had with anybody. You know, he's a guy, one of the guys was 24 years old and he was kind of like, well, I'm going to go back. And, you know, somebody said to him, you know, do you have a girlfriend? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't think I'm going to live that long. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think that I, that's not in my life. You know, that I'm going to, I'm going to be killed. Yeah. And um, some of these guys died. And uh, for a moment we were at a cocktail party at the four seasons hotel in Washington going, you guys are so moving. And, and, you know, two weeks later we were going, Oh, Mitch McConnell's such a bastard. And totally forgot. I, you know, writing a book like The Daughters of Kobani is a great way to say, don't forget. But do you worry? Do you worry that they're going to be last week's story for even uh, an engaged administration? Because I, I think, you know, Tony's shows he cares about this stuff. Uh,
0: I so
1: I worry, but I have hope. So
0: I worry, yes, because it, that's inevitable. Look, I, I come from the outskirts of Washington group in that around the peripheries of that universe i never think anything lasts in washington nor do i think washington is where real change comes to happen i actually think that change comes when folks in the american public get engaged and put pressure on their on their elected representatives i actually don't believe that most change originates in your nation's capital because i think it takes people who don't live this and who aren't at cocktail parties looking smart for one another to actually push for evolutions that endure, and I know that is a radical notion. Maybe that's my PG County notion, David, but uh, that is that's where uh, I come out. And it's interesting. So my godmother worked overnights at the government printing office, and with and when I first when I wrote my first book, she called me very surprised and said wow, I really liked it. And I said, we don't have to sound so astonished by the fact that you like the book. And she said, no, no, it's just that it, it's, it, it actually like made sense to me. It felt like people were talking to me. And I think there is a real opportunity to meet the American public where it is, to, to say, here's what's at stake, here are the people, and here's what we can do. And doing book clubs with Daughters of Kobani in Ohio and California and North Carolina and seeing people who don't contend with these questions every day, get deeply involved and engaged. uh, I just think there's so much room for more of that, for more of us.
1: Well, I I think that's a really interesting observation if I can be permitted to go just uh, one more question longer here, picking up on that. Um, I spent a lot of time in Washington. I became quite cynical about what gets done in Washington. And then I've been shocked. And this is where I'm going to sound like the optimist, but I've been shocked. Here's this guy, Joe Biden, who's been in Washington for 50 years. He is the establishment guy of establishment guys. He has never been known as a big radical thinker. Um, He has got sort of hired for the job because he kind of knew how to work the inside of the system. The inside of the system was broken. And so on the American Rescue Package plan, and and now he's moving with this infrastructure thing, he's done this kind of radical thing, which is what you just said, which was he said, I'm going outside the beltway. Sure, I want bipartisanship, but it's not going to be bipartisanship with these kind of hyper-partisan professional politicians on the Hill. It's going to be Democrats and Republicans and independents outside the beltway, out in America. And you know, I'm optimistic he may actually get this infrastructure package done. He may get some other things done by delivering things that the American people want and by kind of disintermediating those hyper-partisan characters on the Hill. It's an interesting thought and, and a hopeful one that that can happen also in foreign policy. And so that this is, you know, the last question goes back to what you were saying. You've been to these book clubs. Tell us a little bit about what the reaction is of the people at book clubs in, in, in the Midwest to the Daughters of Kobani.
0: It's so moving. I will tell you. Look, I, I think, look, folks, who do I sound like now, David? Uh, no. I came from a community. Of, if of you use moms. the
1: word malarkey, I'll get it.
0: Exactly. <laughs> but, but I came from a community of single moms in Greenbelt, Maryland, all of whom were working at least two jobs, none of whom had a degree from a college and certainly none of whom went to graduate school. I have always believed when people have told me there's no audience for that story, I've always said, I don't buy it even for a second because I know those people. I grew up with those people. And if we actually sat alongside them and talked with them, you would know them too because they actually do care about that hardened conventional wisdom, no one cares about foreign policy. No, they don't necessarily care about nameless, faceless people shooting at other nameless, faceless people, nor do they care about nameless, faceless people in fancy rooms, drinking fancy cocktails, sounding smart to one another. But what they do care about is the human stakes of policy decisions. And if you can talk to them in ways that respect who they are and their lived experiences, and get a big picture things through uh, worlds that are relevant and that feel like they are relevant, then you can move them. The first question I've always gotten is, how did we not know this story? The second question I get is, what can we do? And the third question is, where do we go for more information? I mean, I was in a book club with this woman the other night who was so amazing, said works in real estate, was like, I was up Googling and trying to, you know, reading foreign policy, reading all these magazines, trying to get more background information. She's like, I just didn't know that any of this was happening. So for me, it's a huge privilege to enter people's living rooms and to talk with them about national security and foreign policy issues, Um uh, in a way that gets at the big picture while also showing the personal stakes because we think it makes us smarter to talk about policy as if it does not play out in people's lives. And I've just never believed that's the case.
1: So what do you tell them they can do to help?
0: Well, I say, you can listen to deep state radio. Oh, again. <laughs> much more, and, more. And, and I also say, no one thinks you care. No one thinks you care. They go to a Gallup poll and say, look, X percent of people say they don't care about, right? I said, you use your voice. You organize around all kinds of issues in your children's school. You organize around all kinds of issues in your neighborhood, all kinds of issues around your job. You know how to organize, you know how to use your voice. Many of them are moms, right? Who else knows better how to use their voice? I raise mine all the time. Uh, is But you know, let your folks who represent you know that you care and engage. And that also, you know, is I think deeply connects to them. And, you know, if some who are less politically active might say, "Oh, does that really matter?" And then somebody else in the room will say, "Oh, yeah, you know, so and so who works at the local office, I can connect you to." Or you know, so that dialogue then happens.
1: Uh, it's it's great advice. It's it's always great to talk to you. I'd like to talk to you about this stuff every week. Um, uh, you because you know that one of the flaws. In the history of the world, is that most of that history has only been about half the people? It's only been about the men, and the women are in many ways changing the world, and in many other ways, uh, the the their story uh, will be determinative on how things work out. And so, uh, you know, it is essential that somebody like you is out there writing great books like this uh the 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 books that i'm referring to uh just for the benefit of the audience are the daughters of kobani a story of rebellion courage and justice which has come out this year but also uh, ashley's war the untold story of a team of women soldiers on the special ops battlefield and the dressmaker of karakana uh five sisters one remarkable family and woman the woman who risked everything to keep them safe uh these are these are really uh, important stories. I'm incredibly grateful, not only that you've taken the time to write them and share them with everybody, but that you've taken the time to come visit us here. And I hope you'll do it again soon. Thank you, you. thank you, Gail. And thank Sorry, go ahead. Oh,
0: just saying thank you.
1: Oh, OK. Uh, uh, well, thank you. And uh, uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, for those of you who'd like to join a future one of these, uh, interactive sessions, become a member, go to the dsrnetwork.com, sign up for membership. doesn't cost much. It's like the cost of I think a latte a month and you can go and go to the world's leading experts and pose your own questions. Uh, do that. Uh, help us with what we're doing here. I uh, think it's very interesting. We've got very exciting uh, programming coming up in the future. You'll also find that at the dsrnetwork.com. Until then, Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, Gail. Go out and buy her book, everybody, and uh, stay healthy, everyone. Bye-bye.